So good morning to everybody. Uh, this morning, a little later this morning, we are wading into what might be the thorniest of all of the subjects when we talk about the nature of Scripture, and that is the subject of the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, if you're not quite sure what that word means, inerrancy, or how it applies to the Bible, don't worry. Uh, we'll try to help you as much as we can uh, during the sermon. For our warm-up to the sermon this morning, I want to take us back to uh, the very first statement that we looked at in these segments three or four weeks ago, which was our own denomination's affirmation of faith uh, that comes to us from 1953. So once again, our fellowship statement on the nature of the Bible reads, We believe the Bible to be the complete Word of God, that the 66 books as originally written, comprising the Old and New Testaments, were verbally inspired by the Spirit of God, and were entirely free from error. That the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice and the true basis of Christian union. So it's that little phrase there about the Bible being entirely free from error uh, that's going to be our focus this morning. Bless you now as you continue in worship. Good morning, everybody. I hope that you are remaining encouraged, strengthened, sustained by the Lord. Um, I certainly, standing here today, am not taking it for granted whatsoever uh, that I have air in my lungs and ability to strength to stand here and, and preach today. Uh, count your blessings one by one, as the song says. It's a good practice for all of us to be doing. I hope you're well. I hope you're well. Let's pray, and uh, we will once again back, get back into our sermon series. Father, we thank you that you have gone to such great lengths to give us your word inscripturated, that you also sent your word incarnate into this world to teach among us, to turn our worlds upside down to correct us, to bless us, to encourage us, and then, Lord, to die on the cross, to be raised from the dead, to ascend to heaven, and the promise is true in your word that, Jesus, you are coming back. We thank you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for breathing out your word, for illuminating your word to us as we read it and study it and work through it. Triune God, I'm praying your help, your presence, your blessing on each of us this morning as once again uh, we look into the things concerning the nature of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning on our, in our sermon series on the nature of Scripture, we come to what is most likely the most disputed issue in the entire field of study. And that is the subject, the issue of the inerrancy of Scripture. In their 2009 book, Ancient Word Changing Worlds, Stephen Nichols and Eric Brandt write that the doctrine of inerrancy has been a challenging doctrine for evangelicals in the 20th century. They say... 
Inerrancy was a line of demarcation for decades between fundamentalists and liberals. It divided denominations and disrupted seminaries. The doctrine became a source of contention within evangelicalism as well. Close quote. So just know that with this subject of inerrancy this morning, admittedly, now we're treading into what has proven to be turbulent territory. Just know that up front. I want to begin today by defining what we are talking about. So let's just spend a little bit of time discussing some of the contours around this thing called inerrancy. For starters, very simply, the word inerrant means without error, without error. When we talk about the Bible being inerrant, what we mean is that the Bible in the original manuscripts has no errors. We mean that the Bible in its original manuscripts is fully true in everything that it affirms. Or if you like, I can give you what I think is a helpful definition of inerrancy from Matthew Barrett. We've quoted him quite a bit over the past few weeks. He's written a great book on scripture. Matthew Barrett says, quote, in the most basic sense, inerrancy means that scripture in its original manuscripts does not err in all that the biblical authors assert. That's Matthew Barrett. Now you may have noticed over the past minute or so that I've used the phrase in its original manuscripts. I've used that phrase a few times as we were trying to define inerrancy. The Bible in its original manuscripts is absolutely true in everything that it affirms. It contains no errors. Three Sundays ago when we were talking about the inspiration or what we could call the God-breathedness of the scriptures, we said in that sermon that formally speaking at least, inspiration only applies to the original manuscripts of the Bible, of which we have a grand total of zero. The inspiration of the scriptures applies formally to the original writings. Inspiration does not technically extend to copies and translations. Well, in the same way, it's only those same original manuscripts of the Bible now lost to us that formally speaking can be considered inerrant. Inerrancy does not formally apply to copies or translations of the originals. But again, friends, we have to stress the fact that we don't have those God-breathed, inerrant, original manuscripts does not automatically mean that we should be wary of trusting the copies that we do have. Did you know, for example, that we have no manuscripts of Shakespeare's Hamlet or Plato's Republic? And yet, we place a tremendous amount of confidence in the earliest 
copies of those works that we do have. Well, with the copies of the biblical manuscripts that we have, we should have even greater confidence in their affinity, their likeness to the originals. Why? Because through the ages, God has done specific work to ensure that his word was preserved. I want you to listen to the words of John Skilton. John Skilton is a scholar who wrote this. Quote, we must maintain that the God who gave the scriptures, who works all things after the counsel of his will, has exercised a remarkable care over his word, has preserved it in all ages in a state of essential purity, and has enabled it to accomplish the purpose for which he gave it. Skilton says, it is inconceivable that the sovereign God who was pleased to give his word as a vital and necessary instrument in the salvation of his people would permit his word to to become completely marred in its transmission and unable to accomplish its ordained end. Close quote. Friends, God has preserved his word even in the processes of copying and transmission and translation. We can be assured of that. Now, some people express their problem with the idea of inerrancy, the inerrancy of the original manuscripts. They they express their problem with it by saying something like this. Well, this idea of inerrancy seems only to apply to the original manuscripts, and since you can't produce the original manuscripts of the Bible so that we can examine them, well, then this whole claim that they are inerrant seems like something of a red herring. The reply might be to say, as Carl Henry once said, that you can't prove errancy either with manuscripts you can't produce. In other words, because none of us can produce the original manuscripts, we can't prove that they were errant either. So at best, this becomes something of a stalemate. Leaving that aside, another, I think, more pertinent question for us this morning is, How do we arrive at the conclusion that the Bible in its original manuscripts is inerrant or without error? Well, we go back for a moment to our initial meditation in this series, which had to do with the verbal inspiration of the Bible, the fact that God breathed out the very words of the 66 books in our Bible, and he did that using his human instruments. We've talked about that. Now, if this book has been exhaled by God, God who cannot lie, God who knows all things, all things comprehensively, then it follows necessarily simply because of God being God, 
that the Bible will be without error, that it will be inerrant. In the words of Timothy Ward, inerrancy is no more and no less than a natural implication of the fact that Scripture is identified as the speech act of a God who cannot lie and who has chosen to reveal himself to us in words. Now let's just talk for a minute about error, about making errors. Where does error come from? Well, as John Frame has pointed out, I think helpfully, error arises from two primary sources. Error can arise from deceit or error can arise from ignorance. So first of all, deceit, error arising from deceit. If my aim is to willfully or intentionally deceive, then I can willfully or intentionally make an error. I can willfully and intentionally lie. So for example, say I covertly take your wallet when you aren't looking and I put it in my back pocket. And you come up to me and you ask me, have you seen my wallet? And my reply is, no. Where did you leave it? In that case, I've now just told an intentional lie, right? I have committed a willful error in my speech, and I've done that out of a desire to keep your wallet and to deceive you. So that's just an example how errors, lies, can come from deceit. But error can also come by way of ignorance. Error can be unintentional. So if you come up to me and say, hey Brent, without looking at a calculator, without working it out on paper, what's 498 times 9,023? Uh, I'll give you three seconds to answer. And then I reply to you, well, I don't know, three million? I don't know. There I've just committed an error the answer is not three million, I don't even know what the answer is, uh, but I've committed an error because just using my, my limited mental faculties by themselves, I am ignorant of the answer to that math question. So error, the point is, error can come from ignorance also. But friends, here's the thing. When we are talking about God, Neither deceit nor ignorance applies. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. And Titus 1, 2, God never lies. If it's true of God that he never lies, then God will never willfully lie or intentionally make an error based on an evil desire to deceive, right? God has no evil desire to deceive. It's not in God. And neither is God ignorant. God knows 
all things comprehensively in a way that you and I can never hope to know. He knows all things comprehensively. God is not ignorant of anything. He is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. This is the God from whose sight no creature is hidden, Hebrews 4.13. And so God will not, he cannot make an error based on ignorance, like we may sometimes do. He knows all things and he sees all things. If this non-lying, all-knowing God breathed out the Bible, as we are contending that he did, then it follows that the Bible he breathed out is without error. It is inerrant because it has emanated from a non-deceiving, all-knowing God. So that Proverbs 30 verse 5 gives us the bona fide truth, doesn't it, when it says, how many words of God prove true? Every word of God proves true. Now, just as a little aside here, it's really remarkable, I think, worth our careful consideration that Scripture itself, Scripture itself describes an incredibly uh, close, intimate, organic relationship between, listen, between God himself and the words of Scripture. So close is the relationship between God himself and his words That in places, the words of the Bible become the object of our praise, of our awe. For example, Psalm 56.4, listen carefully. In God, whose word I praise. The word of God warrants praise there. The Word of God is that closely connected with God and nudged up to God. The Word of God deserves our praise. Or Psalm 119 verses 161 and 162, my heart stands in awe of what? Of your words. I rejoice at your word. So again, the words of God deserve awe and joy in this passage because they are so closely knit and bound up with God himself who has breathed them out and spoken them. Well, so far, what we've been trying to do, all we've been trying to do so far is to establish a basic definition for the inerrancy of Scripture, and the reason why we should hold to the doctrine. The basic summary so far is this. The 66 books of the Bible in their original manuscripts cannot err because of the God 
who breathed them out. He pulls inerrancy on what the Bible says about God. Isn't, isn't this just arguing in a circle? Well, my reply would be very simply, and I want you to listen, the Bible alone is authoritative to decide arguments about the Bible. Again, the Bible alone is authoritative to decide arguments about the Bible. Or in the words of J.I. Packer, quote, Scripture itself is alone competent doctrine of Scripture. One more time. Scripture alone is, script, sorry, Scripture itself is alone competent to judge our doctrine of Scripture. That's J.I. Packer. Or in the words of Kevin DeYoung, we go to the Bible to learn about the Bible because to judge the Bible by any other standard would be to make the Bible less than it claims to be. Kevin DeYoung. The situation here is like the person who wants to argue for the supremacy of human reason. How does such a person make that argument? They make their argument for human reason using human reason, right? They effectively argue in a circle. They use their highest authority, reason, to make their argument for reason's supremacy. That's just what people do. Whatever your first principle is, whatever your first principle is, you will tend to argue in a circle back to the first principle. It just so happens that for us as Christians, our ultimate authority, our first principle is the Bible. Well, you say, aside from that, when you claim that the Bible is inerrant without error because of God and because of who he is, doesn't that neglect, doesn't that downplay or minimize the clear human aspect of the Bible? Doesn't it convey and human beings make mistakes all the time? How can we claim an inerrant Bible when there was as much human involvement as there was in the writing of it. I mean, come on, Dunbar, I can take you to places in the Bible where there sure appear to be contradictions and defects and what some would classify as errors. How can we claim an inerrant Bible with all of these problem passages? And besides, the word inerrancy, that very word inerrancy, isn't even found in the Bible. Why are we spending so much time talking about it? My reply here would be, first of all, yes, it's true. The word inerrancy is never found in the Bible, but neither are words like trinity and incarnation found in the Bible. They're not in there either. And yet, as Wayne Grudem says, terms like those are very helpful 
because they allow us to summarize in one word a true biblical concept. Yes. Inerrancy, friends, is a true biblical concept, and so I think we should spend time, we should spend some energy grappling with the word and with the concept, as we're doing today. We should do that at least on some level. As for human involvement in the writing of the Bible, we've already spoken at some length, in fact, we've already spoken about that wonderful fact. Yes, humans were involved in the writing of the Bible. We spoke about that in the first sermon especially. God did use a number of diverse individuals over centuries and centuries to write the 66 books of Scripture, and God most certainly did not erase, did not nullify their human personalities Uh, their context, their styles, their interests, their idiosyncrasies. He didn't minimize or nullify any of that in the process. As we said, when we talk about the Bible, we are really and actually talking about a book that has dual authorship, divine and human. But again, the question, doesn't human involvement mean that the Bible is going to have errors? Well, one legitimate question to ask is this. Is error essential to humanity? Is it the case that simply by virtue of the fact that we have a human being, we will necessarily and always have error. Is error essential to humanity? Well, if we wanted to argue that way, if we wanted to argue that error was essential to human beings, then we would have to argue, listen, we would have to argue that until Adam erred in Genesis chapter 3, He was not quite fully human. If error is essential to human beings, then the pre-error Adam, Genesis 1 and 2, was not quite fully human. And of course, we would never argue that way, would we? Adam was fully human prior to that first human error. Just as we would never argue that the fully human Jesus was somehow less than human because for him it was impossible to err. And further, we would not want to argue as believers that when we reach our glorified state that we will be less than human because we will no longer sin or err. Error is not essential to humanity. In the words of Don Carson, quote, human beings are always finite, yes, but it does not follow that they are always in error. Error does not seem to be essential to humanness, close quote. And if this is the case, friends, 
then we have at least, at least the possibility, at least the possibility that the Bible could be error-free. Because again, error is not essential to humanity. The so-called problem of faulty human authors authoring biblical books, it's not necessarily a problem. Now, as far as so-called problem passages and apparent contradictions and the charge of errors in the Bible, well, let's talk about those issues just for a moment or two here. I have found John Frame's work in this area to be quite insightful and quite helpful. Frame notes, and I want you to listen carefully, he notes that there is a difference between precision and truth, even though there is often an overlap between precision and truth. So, take the area of math. If I am asked, what is 4 plus 8? And I answer, 12. My answer in that case is both precise and true at the same time. In fact, in the case of the question, what is 4 plus 8, my answer must be precise. If it is to be correct, it must be precisely 12 and not 13, if it is to be a true answer. So, in this case, precision and truth coalesce. They overlap. Or in the area of chemistry, If somebody asks me, what is the boiling point of silver, and I answer 20 degrees Celsius, well, in that case, I have just given a terribly imprecise and very untrue answer. The precise answer, I had to look this up, by the way, the precise answer, and thus the only true answer to the question, what is the boiling point of silver, is 2,162 degrees Celsius. What's the point here? The point here is that in areas like math and science, precision and truth so often coalesce. In those areas, precision is normally required for truth. But in other areas of life, Things can be true without being precise. For example, if somebody today asks me, how old are you, Brent? And I say, I'm 50. The answer is a true answer. It is in, it's an inerrant answer. I've made no error in saying I'm 50. But is it a maximally precise answer? No, it isn't. To be maximally precise, I would have to answer the question, how old are you, by saying, well, I'm 50 years, 227 days, 11 hours, 20 minutes, 41 seconds, 30 nanoseconds, or or whatever it is. But of course, none of us talk that way, right? When I say I'm 50 years old, I've told the truth. I have not made an error, and everybody accepts my answer, even though it is not technically precise. Things can be true without being precise. 
Another example would be when the weather person says, the sun rose today at 7.02 a.m. Is that a technically precise statement? Of course it isn't, because everybody knows the sun doesn't rise. But everybody accepts the statement, everybody knows it's a true statement, they know what the person was talking about, and we accept it as a true statement, although not a maximally precise statement. Well, here's the point of this. Since God chose and inspired human beings in the writing of the Bible, should we not expect to find written statements that are true even if they are not maximally precise. Inerrancy does not mean total precision at every single point. That's true. It means truth in that way, but not maximal precision at every single point. In Genesis 32, 31, We are told there in God's inerrant word that the sun rose on Jacob. Is that a true statement? You bet it is. Moses has committed no error in writing down that statement. But is it a maximally precise statement? Of course it isn't. And it need not be in order to be true. Or... This is another great example. Take Mark 1, verse 5. Just take a minute to read that for a minute. How much of the country of Judea and Jerusalem went out to John to be baptized? All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem did. Now, on face value, if we're reading this, We would look at it and we would say, wow, this means that every single citizen without exception in the entire region went and got baptized by John, including the Pharisees and scribes who lived in the area who were opposed to John and Jesus. They too, apparently, according to this statement on face value, they too got baptized. There was not a single person in the entire area who was not baptized by John. But is that what Mark means here? Did Mark mean for this to be taken in a maximally precise sense. No. Mark is making a true statement here. It has no error about it, but it is not meant to be a rigidly precise statement. His meaning very clearly is simply this, that huge numbers of people went out and got baptized by John. Can Mark, here's the question, can Mark, as a scripture writer, not not use hyperbole like we often do? Is that not allowed? If I say to you, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. I actually am kind of hungry right now, but anyway. If I say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, I'm expressing truth there, right? What's the truth I'm expressing? That I'm really hungry. 
It's a true statement, but chances are very high, most likely to be strictly precise, that I could not eat an entire horse. What I'm doing is I'm expressing that I'm really hungry. That's the truth, even if I express the truth using an imprecise statement, using hyperbole. Will we not allow the human biblical writers to engage in hyperbole at times or to use metaphors or to use imprecisions? Are we going to charge them with error if they do that? Are we going to charge Mark with error here? No. John Frame says this. I want you to listen to Frame here. I think this is fantastic. He says, in Scripture, God intends to speak to everybody. To do that most effectively, he, through the human writers, engages in all the shortcuts that we commonly use among ourselves to facilitate conversation. Imprecisions, metaphors, hyperbole, parables, and so forth. He says, not all of these convey literal truth or truth with a precision expected in specialized contexts, but they all convey truth, and in the Bible there is no reason to charge them. Frame says, inerrancy therefore means that the Bible is true not that it is maximally precise. He says, to the extent that precision is necessary for truth, the Bible is sufficiently precise. But it does not always have the amount of precision that some readers demand of it. It has a level of precision sufficient for its own purposes, not for the purposes for which some readers might employ it. Close quote. Well, okay, Dunbar, but what about those places in the Bible where it just seems obvious that there are contradictions happening? For example, in 2 Kings 8.25, it says that it was in Joram's 12th year when Ahaziah of Judah began to reign in its 12th year, 2 Kings 8.25. And then, only one chapter later, 33 verses later, in 2 Kings 9.29, it says that it was in Joram's 11th year, not in his 12th, that Ahaziah began to reign. So one verse says it was Joram's 12th year, the other, 33 verses later, says it was his 11th year. Isn't that simply a contradiction, an error in the Bible? Aren't there many other such problem cases that we could point to also? Well, in fact, friends, we don't have an error at all in those verses that were just mentioned. There are good, very well-researched answers to such apparent problems. In the specific case of dating problems, like the one that we just mentioned, the biblical scholar Edwin Teal 
has shown persuasively, in a book-length treatment, he has shown persuasively that there were a couple of different dating systems that were used in Israel at the time. One system in the northern kingdom and another system in the south. ...and contradictions that we may find in the Bible, even if those solutions do not appear immediately to us. Sometimes it takes some digging and some research and some background in order to solve these apparent issues. Once again, friends, when we assert the inerrancy of the Bible, we're asserting this basic fact that the whole Bible in the original manuscripts does not err. It is completely true in all that it affirms. And as we've said, God's truth comes to us sometimes with the unrefined grammar of some of the biblical authors. So an example here would be this. If I said to you, I am not going. And then I said right after that, I ain't going. The truth of both of those statements is exactly the same, but the grammar in one case is better than the other. Well, sometimes God's truth, because the human uh, authors are writing scripture, sometimes God's truth can come to us with unrefined grammar. It's still true what it says, it's just coming in unrefined grammar or grammar that is less refined than we would prefer. Sometimes it comes that way. Other times it comes to us lacking the maximal precision, the exactness that we have come to expect in areas like math and science. Sometimes the biblical authors use hyperbole, they use metaphor, they use parable, which are fictional stories, in order to express truth. We might also qualify what we're talking about here by saying uh, two more important things as we uh, prepare to wrap this up. First of all, the Bible gives us God's truth on everything that it talks about. The Bible doesn't talk about every single thing. Or if we wanted to study public transit systems in major North American cities, I don't think we would go to the Bible to do that. In the words of J.I. Packer, the Bible is not an inspired, inquire within about everything book. It does not profess to give information about all branches of human knowledge. But again, friends, on the weighty, ultra-significant subjects that the Bible does address and talk about, like God, humanity, salvation, sin, new creation, etc., on those subjects, the Bible gives us unfailing, divine, inerrant truth. And then second, and this too is super important, I think, when we argue for the inerrancy of the Bible, we are arguing for the inerrancy of the Bible. Inerrancy, and this is important, with inerrancy, we are not arguing for the inerrancy of human interpreters or human interpretations 
of the Bible. There is a difference. As John Feinberg once put the matter, the common distinction between the Bible as given and the Bible as interpreted must be made. One more time, the common given and the Bible as interpreted must be made. Though the scriptures as given are completely true, no human interpretation of them is infallible. Or in the words of Matthew Barrett, we must distinguish between the inerrant text and our fallible interpretations of the text. Should our interpretation pose a contradiction between two biblical texts, we should first assume that our interpretation needs correction, not the text. Very important distinction to make. Well, my friends, as we bring all of this to a close this morning, I want to remind you of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 10.35 when Jesus said that the Scripture cannot be broken. The Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus and the apostles never once assumed a critical stance as they opened the Scriptures. Never once. Jesus and the apostles were utterly consistent in their view that the Bible is inerrant, that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is true, that the Bible has been breathed out by God. When a person starts to question inerrancy, when a person begins to consider editing out parts of the Bible that they have determined are errors or wrong or somehow lacking, when when a person starts to do that, that person has done what? He or she has dismissed God's authority and has replaced it with their own authority as being supreme over the inspired text. He or she has become a model in that case of the basic enlightenment position towards Scripture, was that, which was that human reason was finally supreme over any so-called authority of Scripture. And when a person starts to do that, starts to question, okay, this looks like an error, I'm going mm, to edit that out. When a person starts doing that, it probably is not going to be long before that person loses all trust in the authority of the Bible. What's at stake with this doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture? I'm going to leave the last word this morning to Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, who writes, Inerrancy must be understood as necessary and integral to the life of the church, to the authority of preaching, and to the integrity of the Christian life. Without a total commitment to the trustworthiness and truthfulness of the Bible, the church is left without its defining authority lacking confidence in its ability to hear God's 
voice, my friends in Jesus, may Snowden Baptist Church always be a church with a high view of the inerrancy of Scripture to the praise of God's glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, bless you, thank you. You are worthy to be praised and adored, magnified and glorified for the fact that you have given us in our muck, in our mire, in our confusion, in our viciousness, in our sin. You have given us, Lord, this God-breathed word which tells us all we need to know about you, about ourselves, about the future of this planet. Lord God, you are to be praised forevermore for giving us this revelation, for giving us this lamp and this light in this very dark place. Lord God, may we not let this Bible sit on a shelf collecting dust, but may we, Lord, learn to delight it, increase in our joy over it, uh, allow it to correct us, to shape us, to contour us as you would have, Lord. We pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. Amen.